Between May 2020 and April 2021, more than 100,000 people died of drug overdoses in the United States, more than in any previous year. In response to this epidemic, some U.S. cities and states have begun permitting or supporting the operation of harm reduction facilities, known as overdose prevention centers. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Elizabeth Samuels, an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University. Dr. Samuels has co-authored a perspective article about overdose prevention centers and federal policy. Dr. Samuels, what factors have contributed to recent increases in overdose deaths in the United States? There are several factors that have contributed to rising overdose deaths in the United States, and I think key among these is the increasing potency and toxicity of the drug supply. We see this every day in the emergency department, and I think people see this in other clinical settings as well. The presence of fentanyl analogs in the opioid supply has been increasing in prevalence since 2014, but it's not just the opioid drug supply, which fentanyl has been introduced to. It's also been introduced into drugs sold as Xanax, and then more recently in stimulants such as cocaine and methamphetamines, which has proven deadly nationally. The CDC just released updated data. Over 100,000 people have died of drug overdoses in 2021. But there's also been a 23% increase in deaths involving cocaine and a 34% increase in deaths involving methamphetamine and other stimulants as well. Could you explain what an overdose prevention center is and how such a facility is operated? Absolutely. So overdose prevention centers, also referred to as harm reduction centers or supervised consumption centers, are places where people can consume pre-obtained drugs in a monitored setting where staff are available to immediately intervene in the event of an overdose. People who use the centers can be provided or linked to wraparound services, including harm reduction services, services that meet people's basic needs, such as housing or food, medical services, and addiction treatment. There are over 120 harm reduction centers in 10 countries, Australia, Canada, and several European nations. And there are many types of models, from medical models where the harm reduction center overdose prevention center is staffed with medically trained personnel. Perhaps there are some models that are co-located with residential addiction treatment services. And it also ranges down to mobile units, centers that are staffed by peers. Many of these types of programs are in urban centers, but there are programs as well in rural centers, particularly in Canada. But what they have in common is they provide a safe, non-judgmental setting with staff trained to intervene in the event of an overdose, provide sterile consumption equipment to reduce transmission of transmittable diseases and complications related to drug consumption and linkage to comprehensive services. There has been extensive research and evaluation of these centers that has shown benefits to both the individuals who use the centers, the neighborhoods surrounding the centers, and public health. For individuals, research has demonstrated reductions in overdose deaths, in HIV and hepatitis C transmission, and significantly greater likelihood of treatment engagement. In some centers, they've observed nearly doubling treatment engagement with regular program use. Importantly, these centers have been shown not to increase initiation of substance use among people who have not previously used drugs and have not been shown to increase resumed use among people who are in recovery. For the neighborhoods surrounding the centers, they've been shown to reduce public drug consumption, reduce litter of drug consumption equipment, 
reduce crime in the neighborhood as well. There's often concerns among neighbors and businesses about establishment of the centers, but evaluations of multiple centers in multiple countries in multiple different contexts have shown improvements in overall neighborhood conditions. And in the United States, we've historically taken a approach which has criminalized drug and substance use, which has not resulted in reductions in drug-related harm. And these centers, the ethos of them is to take a person-centered approach, treating people with dignity to try to improve and support healthy outcomes for them. As you say in your article, Section 856 of the Controlled Substances Act, sometimes called the Crack House Statute, has been interpreted as prohibiting the operation of overdose prevention centers in the United States. Can you tell us why that's the case and what courts have decided in this area? So Section 856 of the Controlled Substances Act, which is commonly referred to as the crack house statute, makes it illegal to operate a facility for the consumption of illegal controlled substances. The Eastern District Court was asked by the local U.S. attorney in that district to preemptively rule that it would be illegal to open an overdose prevention center. That court ultimately ruled that the purposes of these centers is for public health. It's not explicitly for drug consumption, and so therefore would not be in violation of Section 856. This was appealed to the third district court, which there was a split decision, two to one, which overturned the district court decision and saying that these senders would violate the law. However, that decision is only binding in the third district jurisdictions. So that was New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and the Virgin Islands. Importantly, there's a difference between what the court says is illegal and what district attorneys act on. It doesn't necessitate, if the court finds them illegal, whether the district attorney will go after them. They do have discretion of what they prosecute, which is particularly important in terms of what, on the federal level, the DOJ says they will and won't pursue for prosecution. So in 2021, there was a brief filed by 11 state attorneys general for the Supreme Court to hear the case and overturn it. But that appeal for the Eastern District Court of Pennsylvania was denied. And so there is like ongoing legal discussions and appeals happening within the Eastern District Court. And there's a little bit of a legal limbo of the status of these centers within that district. What are the primary concerns or challenges associated with actually operating one of these facilities? There are several challenges with operating these facilities. So first, legally and regulatory-wise, these centers are in a bit of a legal limbo without clear understanding of how they're going to treat these centers and how they're going to consider them with regards to the Krakow statute. The organizations that would open these centers do place themselves at some risk. Now, there are some states like Rhode Island, which has taken measures to try to provide some protections. Rhode Island passed a state law permitting pilot overdose prevention centers, which they call harm reduction centers in that piece of legislation, and providing some legal protections for liabilities. There's other sanctioned centers already opened in New York City, but there are legal concerns that these centers are operating under. I think that there is also a lot of misperceptions and misunderstandings and stigma about these centers. So opening centers, people often have to contend with 
either resistance or stigma or apprehension among some members of the surrounding community, which perhaps do not understand the public health benefits that these centers provide to not just people who use drugs, but to the surrounding neighborhoods and communities and overall public health. Cost is always a concern uh, in terms of getting funds to operate centers. Many organizations who would be in a position to open centers receive federal or state funding. So if they were not permitted to use those funds to open and staff centers, they would really need to be relying on private donations or other types of funds to operate these services that they would provide there. Although largely the services they would provide at a consumption center are similar to those provided at a syringe services program. Sterile equipment, HIV and hepatitis C testing, linkage to comprehensive both harm reduction, social services, and addiction treatment, and peer or, and or medically trained counselors and supports. So there is a lot of overlap in what is provided. What the additional benefit would be observation, support, and then prompt intervention in the case of an overdose. Finally, you write that a lack of clarity from the federal government has prevented more jurisdictions from pursuing this sort of opportunity. So what actions could the president or Congress take to support the establishment of overdose prevention centers? So there are three steps that we outline that we think that on the federal level could be done to try to remove any kind of apprehension or lack of clarity legally that may exist to support organizations opening these centers and realize their public health benefit. So first, the Department of Justice could publicly declare that they would not interfere with public health interventions or programs such as those that have already opened in New York City and that are planning to be opened in Rhode Island. This is something we saw with state legalization of marijuana in a document called the Cole Memorandum, which was issued by the Obama administration, which basically made clear that the DOJ was not going to interfere, intervene within those states. So the DOJ could do something like that. They could also go just one step further and take a position clarifying that Section 856 of the Controlled Substances Act does not apply to legally sanctioned overdose prevention centers. So the centers supported by the Department of Health in New York City and that are licensed and regulated by the Department of Health in Rhode Island would be exempt from Section 856. And then finally, Congress could change the law. They could modify the Controlled Substances Act to exempt overdose prevention centers from 856. They could also prohibit federal funds to be used to enforce the statute against either locally or state-sanctioned overdose prevention centers. So those are three measures that are both either at the DOJ level or at the congressional level, which could really clarify and support implementation of overdose prevention centers and try to reduce overdose deaths and other drug-related harms. I mean, I think finally what I want to say is overdose deaths are higher than they've ever been. We are in an all-hands-on-deck situation, and we need to use every evidence-based tool available to us, and we need to really take radical reapproach to how we're approaching this crisis, because what we are currently doing is not working. 
and medicine and public health and anything, when you're doing something that's not working, you need to re-examine and reframe, try to understand how do we address the underlying causes and what are the steps we need to take to shift what we're doing. So that includes using all the evidence-based tools we have, including overdose prevention centers, and really taking a critical look at what some of the more upstream and fundamental causes of the crisis are. So you taking a more criminalization approach to substance use as opposed to a public health or medical approach has failed us. And I think it's time that we really take a fundamental shift to try to reverse this trend of rising overdose deaths, which has exponentially risen over the last several decades. Thank you, Dr. Samuels. 